What would you do for a Klondike bar? The all-important question. I spent some time this week investigating this iconic question. If you look on YouTube, you can find old commercials going back to the 1980s, where people on the street would be posed this question and then asked to do something ridiculous for the camera. Make chicken noises make noises like a monkey, uh, silly things like that. With the kind of summer that we've had, uh, it's easy to imagine people doing even crazier things to beat the heat with some cold refreshment. And I can say for myself that on a 100 degree day, I'd sing Yankee Doodle Dandy as a chicken to get me a Klondike bar. <laughs> Life is chocked full of more questions than what would we do for a Klondike bar. We hear also, what would you do to change careers? What would you do to find some good friends? What would you do to give your kids a good future? What would you do to find healing for yourself? or for someone you loved. Generally, you know you're dealing with those questions when you start Googling, what can I do? When you're at that point, you're usually close to the threshold of desperation. Sometimes desperation can cloud our vision, especially in the beginning. But as we pass through the fog, some things become clearer. Our limits and our options become clear. We develop convictions about the available solutions and maybe even find that there is really only one solution. Then it only becomes a question of what will you do to acquire that solution? Here in Matthew 20, verses 29 through 24, 34, we encounter some desperate men. They're blind men who need to receive their sight. And so they take radical action. Now, just to kind of orient you to the setting here. You recall that um, Jesus and his disciples are in the area of Judea, and they're on their way to the city of Jerusalem. Um, and if you look at the map, you can see at that point, um, that point represents the city of Jericho, which at this point in the text, they're passing through. So they're about a couple days' journey outside of Jerusalem. They're getting closer. Closer to the culmination of Christ's mission, where he'll go to the cross and die, and three days later be raised from the dead. But for now, they're passing through Jericho. And according to Matthew, 
here in this text, says that as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples, he encountered two blind men sitting on the side of the road. Now, if you're aware of the other gospel accounts, you'll pick up on the fact that there are some differences in details between them when it comes to this scene. We go to the Gospels of Mark and Luke. We see some similarities and also some differences. Both Matthew and Mark say that they encountered these blind men as they were leaving Jericho. But in the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus encountered the blind man when he was approaching Jericho. So what do we have here? Is this a contradiction between the Gospel accounts in terms of what actually went down? Well, we get some help through the study of archaeology. Um, if you're studying this region, um, you'll come to discover that there is a modern-day Jericho, and there's also the ancient city of Jericho, that city that um, we hear described in the book of Joshua when Joshua and the Israelites march around the city and the walls call, come falling down. And actually, I've actually been here before. I had a site report I had to do my first year of college, and so it's just like a little oral report. And um, it's about what it looks like. It's a big pile of dirt, and that's what a lot of the ancient cities in the Near East look like. All that's left of them is giant piles of dirt. Um, and so when we're talking about this ancient city of Jericho, as far as it goes in the time of Jesus, we're talking about a city that had been pretty much uninhabited for about 600 years. And that's not to say that there weren't like people who were encamped or had little homes or something like that, but as far as it being a major city and all of that, that was over and done with. Um, which is in keeping somewhat with the uh, promise that with the oath that Joshua pronounced when the city was destroyed. He said, Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So someone does actually try to rebuild the city of Jericho, and it does come at the cost of his firstborn son. But even that rebuilt city does not stand, um, but is eventually destroyed by the Babylonians. And so... We have this big pile of dirt, this ancient city of Jericho. But in Jesus' day, we have a new settlement of Jericho. Um, and this new version is built by the Romans and is the home of one of Herod's palaces. Um, and you can see it there. Um, it's got All these sites have Arabic names attached to them, so it's called Tallulah, Abu Alalik. Um, and it's about two miles distance from Jericho. And it's in the direction that a person would walk if they were on their way to Jerusalem. You can imagine passing through the old Jericho and then passing through the new Jericho. So when we're looking at 
these three accounts, when it's compared against the archaeological data, we see that we don't have a contradiction here, but just different vantage points. So when we're looking at Matthew and Mark, they're describing Jesus and his disciples leaving the old Jericho, whereas in the Gospel of Luke, he's describing Jesus and his disciples approaching this new settlement of Jericho. And this makes sense that Luke would kind of approach it from this vantage point, because Luke's Gospel um, is really written for Gentiles. Not that it's not for Jews, but it's just that the audience that he had in mind was a Gentile audience. And so they're going to be familiar with this new version of Jericho. Now, this isn't the only difference that we notice between them. Um, the other difference that we notice between them is that um, in the Gospel of Matthew, it speaks of two men, whereas in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, it speaks of one man. Now, this isn't the first time we've talked about this difference. Um, you remember back in Matthew 8, probably a long time ago now, um, we talked about Jesus encountering two men dis, um, possessed by demons. And these men, he cast the demons out of these men and sent them into a herd of pigs. Um, now, in the other Gospels, um, there's only one man being recorded um, in this encounter. But in Matthew, there's two. And we consider whether, is, you know, is Matthew artificially doubling the number of men that he's encounter, encountering in order to kind of make that line with the standard of there being two witnesses to verify a true testimony? Because they both had, were testifying that Jesus was the Son of God. Um, and here we have the blind man testifying that Jesus is the Son of David. So is Matthew just concocting something? Well, Back when we were looking at that passage, we also considered Matthew 15, where there's one Canaanite woman who approaches Jesus seeking healing for her daughter, and she confesses that um, he's the son of David. And yet we don't see a duplication of like two mothers coming or something, or something like that. Um, so we don't have reason to believe that there's artificial duplication going on here. So instead what we need to consider is that what Mark and Luke are doing is focusing on a principal character that those in the first audience, that is the first people that they're writing to who are kind of contemporaneous to this situation, would be familiar with. And that especially seems to be the case given that in Mark's account, he actually names the guy. He says, this is Bartimaeus. As though, like, you, you all know Bart, right? The guy that was healed. This is, this is when he gets healed. Um, and perhaps this Bar Bartimaeus fellow actually became kind of a prominent disciple in their circles. So I hope this kind of helps kind of clarify some of these differences in details. But I think in, in a big picture, when you're approaching the Gospels, one of the things that you have to understand is that we're not receiving a video recording, recorded account of history. Um, 
that's kind of the 21st century conception of history, where it's like, if you're going to write history, you're going to write down every single detail. That's just not how the ancients did it. They leave some details out. They include others. There's nothing wrong with that. That was just the standard of the day um, because they're trying to highlight some particular things. And in this case, we're suggesting it's because people knew who this fellow Bartimaeus was. Um, so it's not a problem. It's a completely acceptable way, and there's no contradiction here. So after clearing up some of these details, let's return to, this, to the actual scene. What's going on here? So they're leaving old Jericho, they're entering new Jericho, and Jesus passes by two men as he's followed by a large crowd. And uh, the men, as they hear this crowd passing by them, start calling out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. What's the big idea that the blind men have here? Their big idea is that they believe that Jesus can heal them. He can have mercy on their blindness. Now, they probably have come under this impression because they've heard about what Jesus has been doing. They've heard about how he's been able to heal others. It's interesting, though, that they call him the son of David. By calling him the son of David, what they're indicating is that they believe that he's the Messiah. This is just another way of referring to someone as the Messiah because it's believed that the Messiah would come from the line of David and sit on David's throne. When we look back to the Old Testament, we find that what these blind men are expecting is exactly what one would expect the Messiah would bring. Um, when you look at Isaiah 35, verses 4 through 6, it says, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And when you go forward in the book of Isaiah to Isaiah 61, you don't see explicit reference to the blind receiving sight, but you still have like a common theme going on of, of deliverance. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. This is the one who is the suffering servant, who is the Messiah speaking. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim Good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Now from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, he's been making this connection. Sorry, I moved ahead a little bit far. Um, he's been making this connection explicit. When we go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, he he starts off immediately by saying, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. So this is a critical part of our understanding of who Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher, a wise rabbi. He has a larger significance. He's fulfilling prophecies that were given hundreds of years ago. 
He is this promised king to come. Now, as the crowd hears these two men crying out, they're not moved with sympathy or compassion, saying, oh yeah, so let's make sure that these guys get to see Jesus. No, that's not what we see. That's not their reaction. What we see them do is get annoyed. They basically tell the men to shut up. Get out of the way. And here we kind of see an echo of how the disciples responded when parents tried to bring little children to Jesus. Remember what they did then. They tried to turn them away. They rebuked the parents, saying, Jesus basically doesn't have time for you. Likewise, this crowd assumes that Jesus is too important to bother with these blind beggars. And maybe it would seem fair to assume that. I mean, again, consider that this crowd is following Jesus because they do believe that he is pretty significant. That probably like these men, they're thinking, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He is this promised king to come. And with anyone who's an important politician, we kind of anticipate that they won't have time for the little person. Um, And we see that in our society today, unless a politician is maybe stopping into a diner to get a photo op and things like that. Otherwise, they're very, very busy and they've got the guards and all, all of that. Jesus already had enough of a following behind him. He didn't need these guys. He certainly didn't need a couple of blind men. And so, he didn't need to be bothered by them. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't just keep going on his way. Instead, we see Jesus stop in his tracks. And he asks, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, just think about the framing of that question of what we've read earlier here in Matthew 20. Jesus has talked with James and John and the rest of the disciples about how they need to understand that to be great in God's kingdom is to become a servant. That to be a ruler in God's kingdom does not look like being a Roman emperor. And so what Jesus is doing here in his response to these blind men, is really modeling that. He's making himself a servant. He's basically saying, what do you want me to do for you? I am at your service. It's a crazy thing. He's got this huge crowd and he stops the whole crowd to do this. The men respond simply but sincerely, Lord, we want our sight. And Matthew says that Jesus has compassion for them. And this isn't the first time that we've seen Matthew record this response on the part of Jesus. In Matthew 9.36, he says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. 
Matthew 14, 14, he noted, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now this word compassion in the Greek is splachnizomai. Um, we're a little bit behind. Splachnizomai. <laughs> um, and it's kind of a funny definition. <laughs> it says, to be moved as to one's bowels. Hence to be moved with compassion. Have compassion. For the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. Now that seems funny to us. It's like Jesus was having a bowel movement. Like <laughs> no, it's just, we think about from the heart, they thought from the bowels. They just had a different location for the feelings. But the idea here is that Jesus is moved from his very insides with compassion for these men. And I just wanted to highlight that because I think sometimes we can have a very plastic kind of understanding of Jesus where it's just kind of like, he's just kind of like, yes, bless you, bless you, and just kind of like has just kind of this veneer of niceness. But I think it's important that we grasp the full humanity of Jesus here. Where, you know, like think about sometime like you've really been moved with love and compassion for someone. For someone that you truly loved. That's what Jesus was feeling for these two men that he just encountered on the road. On the road. It's important for us to see this humanity in Jesus, I think, because it also tells us something about his divinity. It tells us something about God. That God has this kind of compassion and love for us. Because we can imagine having that kind of compassion and concern for each other because we're all kind of in it together. But this is the profound thing. is God has gotten into it <laughs> with us. He has that same kind of love and compassion for us that we might have for those whom we most dearly love. So we have a perfect picture of Jesus' humanity and divinity all at once. And so Jesus puts his hands on them and he heals them. Now, Matthew doesn't make any comment here about the faith of the men. We've often seen this be mentioned explicitly when Jesus heals someone and he heals them because of their faith. But these men have been showing their faith this whole time by the very fact that they left off from begging. I mean, practically speaking, this is a great opportunity for them just to beg and get some coin. you got this huge crowd going by. They leave off doing that. See, never mind about that. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And they, they, they become half-crazed and start pleading for mercy because they're so utterly confident that Jesus can heal them. Jesus can save them. Now, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, we have indication that Jesus did comment on this. Um, I'm not sure if we've got the slide for this. Yeah, in Mark 10, 52. It says, Jesus said, your faith 
has healed you. And in Luke as well, he basically says the same thing. Your faith has healed you. Now, I think there's something that we have to clarify here because some, some of you might be already thinking about this. If I haven't received healing, if someone I, I know hasn't received healing, is it because they've lacked faith? The answer is no. Some of us will continue to suffer the brokenness of this life. And it's not because we lack faith. If we look at the Apostle Paul, I think we have kind of a good example. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Now, this is after the Apostle Paul had received this great vision of heaven. Something so wonderful he couldn't even talk about it. But then he follows it up by this. So he's received this great blessing from God in being able to receive this vision. But then he says this, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And we don't know exactly what Paul was suffering here. But he just listed off a bunch of different things that could cover pretty much the whole gamut of what a person could suffer. He says, I delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, and persecutions, and difficulties. I think all of us have, a, have some experience in those departments. What Paul says here is that God sometimes allows us to endure those things because there's something that can be even better than receiving physical healing in this age. And that better thing is learning that leaning on God's grace, leaning on God as our strength, that is a better thing. Learning that by leaning on God, His power can be made perfect in our lives through the weaknesses through the difficulties. So that like Paul, we can in fact be able to say that when I'm weak, then I am strong. Because sometimes when we're strong, we come under the illusion that I don't need God. That I'm all set on my own. And sometimes we can really begrudge when we have to deal with difficult circumstances. We ask God, why are you letting this happen? happen, and maybe you feel like, God, I get it, I get it, I need to depend on you, but can you just deal with this? But I think if we change our vantage point and view this as, yeah, this is really difficult, we're not denying that, but God is able to turn something that's really difficult into a gift 
because now we're no longer under any delusions that I can go through this life depending on myself. That the only stronghold in this world is God. We can try to deceive ourselves saying that we can avoid death, but we can't. That's the end of us all. And then what will your hope be then? It can only be God. It can only be Christ. And so, there's a promise here though, still, that Jesus is introducing through this healing. Because it's as though the kingdom of God is breaking into the middle of history. He's showing us something that is to come. Because we're not going to be left forever in the rotten physical conditions that we endure. We're promised that full and lasting healing is going to come. So even if we don't experience it in this age, there is an age in which healing is coming. In Revelation 21, verses 3-4, through 4, John, in his revela- revelation, records, he says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or crying, or mourning, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's the promise that awaits us all. And the healing of these two blind men is a sign of what is to come. Just as Jesus' resurrection is the fullest sign of what is to come, that we're not going to be left enclosed by death. Death will not hold us down. Our bodies will be raised and the earth will be restored. But these two men are blessed. They do receive this healing. And it's not just for themselves, but it's, for a, it's, it's a sign to all those who witness it. We see this in the two outcomes that result. First, the men, the men are healed. And then following that, they decide that they're going to follow Jesus. And I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> After Jesus healed you like that, they, we were, they already were believing he was the son of David. Now they really believe that he's the son of David. And so they start following him. And in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 18, verse 43, Luke records, when all the people saw it, they also praised God. This is the ultimate end of all these, these miracles. Is they're acting as signs. Signs of God, of His glory, of what He's doing. And so they're given in order to produce this response of faith, of believing, of praise. So there are several things that stand out to me in this passage. But what really strikes me is this closing of the last verse and how these blind men could see more clearly and brilliantly who Jesus was even before their physical vision was restored to them. They could see that even before they were healed. They were so certain about who Jesus was and what He would be willing to do for them that the discouragement and disapproval of the crowd 
would not stop them. A self-evident miracle in these verses is that God gave them their eyesight back, which is great. But the greater miracle, hidden in plain sight, is that these men were given the vision to see Jesus for who He was. The Son of David. The Messiah. The Savior. Not all of us suffer physical blindness. But all of us have suffered spiritual blindness before following Jesus. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you're only here because God has opened your eyes. Apart from that gracious touch, we're all stuck in the dark. These men couldn't see anything else but Jesus. But because they saw Jesus for who He was, they came to see everything else too. Faith leads to sight. Now in this moment, we see only as a reflection in a mirror. We don't see everything clearly in this life. We don't get to enjoy Jesus' physical presence. But by faith, we're able to move forward. And by faith, we know that we shall see face to face. Our trust in Jesus will lead to our deliverance. We don't understand everything about this life. You and I don't know the whys behind everything that happens. But we do see Jesus. And it's by Christ that we can make sense of this world. I wanted to share with you a quote from C.S. Lewis along these lines. It says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. You don't need to understand everything about the sun to see by it. You don't need to understand everything about Jesus or God's way in this world to respond with faith and live life by the light of Christ. We see three things in this passage. First thing that we see is the compassion and priorities of Jesus. Jesus means what He says when He says that the least are counted as the greatest in the kingdom of God. He proves that He means what He says that we should be servants if we're going to be great in God's kingdom. Because He proves that by stopping and serving these men. And so, if we're following Jesus, we should follow His servant example. We should care for people who the crowds say don't matter. We should care for the people who are said to be insignificant, won't help us get where we need to go. Jesus stops the whole crowd for those people. The other thing that we see is the power and identity of Jesus. 
Simply put, this healing confirms the testimony of the men that he is the son of David. If he wasn't the son of David, if he wasn't the Messiah, and he was some kind of hoax, why in the world would God give him the power to heal these men? By giving him this power, he's confirming their testimony. Last thing that we see is our own broken condition and need for healing. We hear the men crying out for mercy. And in hearing their cry, we should realize that every human being should be crying to Jesus, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Because all of us are in need of mercy. We're in need of mercy because of the broken things that we endure in this world, whether it's the physical illnesses, the wrongs that have been done to us, but we also need mercy because of the wrong that we've done to others, and all of us have done something wrong. We need His mercy. And the good news is is that in this passage, we're reminded that He loves us. That He will have mercy on us. He will heal us spiritually and physically. In this age, possibly, as far as physically goes, but most certainly in the age to come. Jesus has mercy for you and for me. Let's go to Him like these men. Let's cling to Christ. And pray. Dear Father, You've shown You great compassion towards us through the sending of Your Son. Father, we thank You that as we come before this text, we're reminded of Your reliability. We're reminded of the reliability of Your Word and His testimony that it is true, Father. We're also reminded of Your reliability, Father, in that You don't overlook those who are broken, but that You've come so that the blind may see. You've come so that we can be completely healed, Father. And as we suffer in this world, Father, we do pray that You would bring physical healing. We do believe that You can do that, Father. And we pray for that. But we also have faith, Father, that if we endure this suffering without healing in this age, that Your grace is enough for us. That You make Yourself strong in us through our weakness, Father. And that this is a gift too. Father, we pray that insofar as we are spiritually blind, that You would give us sight. That those in our lives that we know who are spiritually blind, You would bring them sight so that they would see Jesus for who He is. Your Son. The Messiah. 
and Savior. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday for Missions Sunday. We're going to hear stories of how God has been working through the missionaries and organizations that RCC supports. We hope you'll stick around for the fellowship meal that will follow afterwards. It's always our joy to welcome you into our community.